Um, psalm 143 is a psalm written by David, and the psalms are categorized in various different groups. Uh, we've talked about some that are psalms of lament, and we've talked about some that are psalms of praise. There's different kinds of psalms. And Psalm 143 is, is a little bit different in that it's not one kind of psalm. It's a psalm of petition where David asks God for specific things. It's also a psalm of lament where David is crying out to God and sharing with God um, what is pressing in on him. Uh, some consider it to fall into the category of a psalm of penitence. I believe there's seven of those if you include this one. There's seven of them in the psalms. Some people believe it to be a psalm of penitence where a person is um, acknowledging their sin to God and, um, and acknowledging, asking God for mercy or forgiveness. And while David doesn't actually list any sins, he does ask for mercy in verse 1. He says, hear my prayer, O Lord, give ear to my pleas for mercy. And in verse 2, he says, enter not into judgment with your servant, for no one, is, no one living is righteous before you. So that seems to be an acknowledgement of at least the recognition that sin is present in him, that he would stand guilty, and that uh, he has no place before God except for God's mercy. Uh, so, so a lot of people push this into the category of a psalm of penitence as well, which is possible, and I would not argue with that. Um, it also seems to be a psalm of praise when you get to the end. So it's, it's kind of a unicorn in that it's a lot of different types of psalms instead of just one kind. David is, is broken here. I'm, that's just the emotional thing here for me is I, I start to enter into David's feelings and that's, that messes me up. But we don't know what the circumstances are that David is facing, but he's in a very bad place, um, uh, spiritually to some degree and emotionally. And yet in his, in his emotion, in his spiritual, um, uh, he, he just his spiritual brokenness, a feeling like uh, he's a mess, his choice is to talk with God. And as he talks with God, there are truths that drive his thinking and establish his hope. And there are truths that enable him to move forward emotionally, spiritually, and physically. And these truths are timeless and offer us hope in the battle we face today. Where we get discouraged because of our sin or we get discouraged because of our circumstances, when we are emotionally falling apart or spiritually down and um, feeling like we can't get up, David's words offer us a lot of hope and move us back to our God, who is our Father and our friend. So I would like to read Psalm 143 aloud and I'll invite you to follow along in your Bible as I read. Here, oh, sorry, a Psalm of David. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my pleas for mercy. In your faithfulness, answer me. In your righteousness, enter not into judgment with your servant, for no one living is righteous before you. 
For the enemy has pursued my soul. He has crushed my life to the ground. He has made me sit in darkness like those long dead. Therefore, my spirit faints within me. My heart within me is appalled. I remember the days of old. I meditate on all you have done. I ponder the work of your hands. I stretch out my hands to you. My soul thirsts for you like a parched land. Answer me quickly, O Lord. My spirit fails. Hide not your face from me, lest I be like those who go down to the pit. Let me hear in the morning of your steadfast love, for in you I trust. Make me to know the way I should go, for to you I lift up my soul. Deliver me from mine enemies, O Lord. I have fled to you for refuge. Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. Let your good spirit lead me on level ground. For your name's sake, O Lord, preserve my life. In your righteousness, bring my soul out of trouble. And in your steadfast love, you will cut off my enemies and you will destroy all the adversaries of my soul. For I am your servant. These are the words of our God. Whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let us consider the steadfast love of the Lord. As I mentioned earlier, we have no idea regarding David's circumstances, but we do know he was desperate. Some people believe that this psalm is connected to Psalm 142, and if you read Psalm 142, you will find similar uh, statements, um, or at least concepts, in Psalm uh, 142. But as we read, and, and Psalm 142, David was in a cave. Uh, he was being pursued by Saul, and he was in a cave. But as we read verses 3 and 4, David clues us in a bit as to where he was mentally, physically, and spiritually. He says, the enemy has pursued my soul. He has crushed my life to the ground. He has made me sit in darkness like those long dead. Therefore, my spirit faints within me. My heart within me is appalled. And and that word means confused. Verse 4 in the New Living Translation reads, I am losing all hope. I am paralyzed with fear. Those are pretty heavy words. I'm losing all hope, God, and I am paralyzed with fear. I don't know what to do. And David uses four words in those two verses, soul, life, spirit, and heart, to express the inner turmoil that has brought him to the brink of the abyss. He doesn't know if there's a future, and he doesn't know if he can go forward. We might say it this way today, I am so tired and so discouraged and so afraid, so confused, that I don't think I can go on. And I don't know all of your circumstances. I know some of you and your circumstances. Well, I know, I know all of you, mostly. Um, and I know some of your circumstances. But I don't know all the circumstances of everyone's heart that's here this morning. But I have to believe that there are some that may not be as far along the path as David. But you feel crushed by your circumstances. And maybe you're just going through the motions hoping that you can take another step. One of the things that I found over the years 
especially since I've been a pastor, when reading the Psalms, is that oftentimes in the Psalms there's this theme or there's this thread of just emotional chaos and turmoil in the writer's lives. There's, there's, again, these psalms of praise, but there's these underlying currents and underlying tones. Sometimes it's louder, sometimes it's swifter, sometimes it's just like off to the side, but there are these emotions and spiritual discouragement that go on and they call out to God, asking God to keep them going. And David speaks here in Psalm 143 of an enemy that has been chasing him down. He says in verse 3, the enemy has pursued my soul. David has been on the, he's saying basically, I'm on the run. If If this enemy is Saul, David has been on the run for somewhere between 10 and 15 years. That's what people don't realize about David oftentimes. You know, there's this story, and, and Saul is made king, and then David kills Goliath, and then uh, Samuel finds David and anoints him and says, you're going to be king, and there's, there's a couple more details, and maybe three more chapters, and then all of a sudden David's king, you know? And we, we have a tendency to think of David as, yeah, I brought that run on this, on, from Saul for a few months must have been a tough thing. But there's a general consensus that for 10 to 15 years, David was hiding out on the run from Saul. Away from family, away from a lot of friends. Some friends came to be with him and stay with him. But that promise of a kingdom, remember? Oh, you're going to be the king. yippity doo da. I'm king of the caves, you know? And, and when, is, when am I going to die? But David continues to believe in God, although he's saying now that that enemy has been pursuing him and actually says he's crushing me. As I, as I was thinking about this passage, I thought, you know, I don't know that David actually realized this, but his real enemy was not Saul. His real enemy was someone much more powerful. I think it's interesting as David writes this, he doesn't, he doesn't say who his enemy is. He just leaves it general. But what he is communicating is that this enemy is not just after his body to kill him. That this enemy is after his soul, his life, his heart, his spirit. And as I was thinking about David and thinking about this situation. I thought behind the scenes there was a a greater being, a much more evil person, a much more powerful person named Satan who was continually, then and now, from the time that God created and, and since time has gone by for thousands of years, this person named Satan has had an agenda and has been continually seeking to overturn God's plan of redemption. And that plan of redemption was to be fulfilled through David's offspring. The serpent's agenda was always to prevent the coming of the serpent crusher. 
When God stood in the garden and spoke to the serpent and said, this is going to be your future, he tells Eve that there will be one who comes from her, an offspring who will crush the serpent's head and you will bruise his heel, as he says to Satan. That statement, and I've said this before and I want to keep emphasizing it and get it in your mind, that serpent, that statement is an underlying current that runs all the way through Scripture until Paul writes in Romans 15, one day you will crush the serpent's head. He says that to us as believers. There is this one who is to come and, and this whole thing is coming down to this man named David and the kingdom is being given to David in God's way and God's will. But the serpent crusher doesn't want to see that happen. As I thought about this one named Satan and I thought about this serpent, Paul writes to us in Ephesians 6. And after talking to us about a lot of different things in chapter 4 and our behavior and chapter 5, if you go on, our behavior and our relationships. Paul says to us in relation to this battle that we're in, that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Paul says to believers that this battle with sin is not something that is between you and another person. The enemy out there is not them. We, as Christians, we, we have such a buy-in to this idea that it's us against them, whoever them may be. Today, today, the them is whatever thing we don't agree with. The them are the people who are destroy, trying to destroy America. The them are the people who are trying to push agendas in our schools. The them today to Christians are the neighbor who has his loud parties and swears all the time and, and gets drunk all the time. It's the thems. And Paul says the problem is not they're the thems. The problem is that you are in an epic battle. That you, you're seeing the fruit of the battle that's going on, but it's a battle that's behind the scenes. It is a spiritual battle behind the scenes, and he refers to those enemies as rulers and authorities and cosmic powers over this present darkness, not rulers and authorities like presidents and vice presidents or school boards or any of that stuff. The rulers and the authorities are the people, are the ones who are over this present darkness. They are Satan and his minions. It is a spiritual battle that we're in. We're warring against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. David's conflict seemed to be between him and Saul, but ultimately there was an unseen foe or I really should say unseen foes who opposed David because his foe opposed David. Uh, because his foe opposed God. 
It felt like Saul or other people, but it was really a battle between Satan and God. And David was collateral damage to David was collateral damage to Satan. He just did not want God's plan to happen, and if David looked like he was at the forefront of it, Satan was going to come after him. And I think there's an important truth for us to understand in this issue of what David is facing and what we're facing today. Again, we have a tendency to view the conflicts that we have in our lives, such as the cultural wars that press in on us, or the broken relationships, or the national wars, the advance of what is evil. We see them as human conflicts. But Paul wants us to understand that there is an unimaginable evil that is unseen driving what we see. And we've got to get our eyes off of the issues that are around us and, and trying to change the issues. And we've got to understand that the war is spiritual and it requires people who pray, people who stand fast in the power of God, people who put on the whole armor of God, and people who go forward to share the gospel of God, the gospel of Jesus, in the power of the Holy Spirit. The best that you can do is possibly clean some things up. Make some people more moral. That's the best you can do if you have an attitude of us against them. The worst that you will do is separate completely from the unsaved and go into what are really spiritual or Christian bubbles and isolate yourself to protect yourself, which removes the gospel from the unsaved. God has not called us to retreat. God has not called us either to clean things up God has called us in the power of the Spirit, putting on the whole armor of God, which is what he follows with in chapter 6, to go forward into battle with the good news and to live in a way that demonstrates Christ-likeness, that shows that we believe in God and to share the good news of the gospel with other people. I challenge you to show me in the letters to the churches where Paul or the other people told them to change the political situation or the culture. He told them to be strong in the faith, to walk in the spirit, and to go forward with the gospel because the gates of hell cannot prevail against the church moving forward. Paul tells us in Galatians 5 that the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. So Paul gives us the other side of the battle. And that is, there, well, first there's a battle against spiritual powers, but secondly, there's a battle within us where our flesh wants certain things and the spirit is saying, no, follow me. And we have to be honest about what's going on inside of us and choose 
to walk in the Spirit. Every day, internally and externally, we are engaged in a war that can wear us down and make us want to quit. So knowing that, how should we respond? David here is crushed. David's heart, his soul, his spirit, and if you want to argue we're two-part or three-part, which some people get really hung up on that kind of stuff, David's words are we're four-part, okay? If If you want to bring some conclusions to that out of this, David says, my whole being is falling apart. And I'm worn out. And God, I need you. And David's response is amazing. He says in verse 5, there's there's three words he uses in verse 5. And they're all bringing the idea to the same conclusion. I remember the days of old. I meditate on all that you have done. I ponder the work of your hands. I remember, I meditate, I ponder. It's not three points. It's not three different things. David is saying three different words that I am going to look back on who you are in my life and what you've done in my life. He's saying the same thing three times that he is choosing in the midst of this crushing that's taking place in his life. He chooses to carefully reflect on what God has done for him in the past. And it's not, don't, don't hear, I remember the days of old as, as that longing for yesterday when things were better. That's not what David's saying. I remember the days of old. It's not the good old days when life was simpler and more comfortable. I think we as Christians spend a lot of our time in our culture world wars, trying to get back to a time when we felt more comfortable. When we felt like the world agreed with us. And all it really was was a time period where we were getting less and less obedient because there wasn't anything pressing on us There wasn't a battle that seemed to need to be fought. And we just kind of backed off. And we aligned with the powers that were around us to create a more moral society, which means a whole lot more moral people are going to hell than immoral people going to hell. What David is saying here is I'm engaging purposely in 2020 hindsight to remember how God brought me through difficult times in the past. I'm going to focus on, I'm going to remember how God provided for my needs, how God protected me, how God rescued me, or how God encouraged me when discouraged. And we can do the same thing today. We can think back on times of our life where our relationship with, good, with God was good and where we sensed God's presence. And we need to do that in the midst of spiritual failure. When we have failed for the 200th 
millionth time with a particular sin, it is a good time to remember times of victory that God has brought into our lives. And maybe they were briefer than we wanted them to be. But it's good for us to reflect back on how God gave us victory at that time, knowing that he can give us victory again at this time. When finances are bleak, it is good to reflect back on how God has provided for you at times. I'm, I remember when Terry and I had made the decision to, for me to go back to school and to pursue ministry. Long story, I've told parts of it before. So I'm not going to rehearse the whole story. But God provided for us in ways that were just incredible. I had never had to have God provide for me because I worked jobs that paid me well. And suddenly God brought us to a place where we couldn't provide for ourselves. And, and we had made the decision that we were, I was going back to college and as part of that, this particular college did not allow you to accrue debt. And you had to have your first semester paid for when you showed up. And it was, you know, you think about colleges that don't let you accrue debt. How in the world can you do that? You can't imagine how often students saw God provide for their needs in incredible ways. Sure, some of them had to sit out for a year and then go back to school. But they learned a lot of interesting things about ministry while they were home in their churches. And, and when they worked in the real world, so to speak. But in our efforts to move to the college, Terry and I were able to secure a 1961 International Harvester bus. And the windows were blacked out of it and, and the guy who had it used it for things like hunting. The seats were all taken out. He used it for camping and for hunting, and he said, you can use my bus to get back to school, to go back there, about 1,000 miles. We were like, okay. And we looked like the Beverly Hillbillies, honestly. We had all of our stuff just loaded into this truck, and we took off. And we got five hours outside of Denver, and I probably, you've probably heard this story, but bear with me, I'm getting old. And we came into a town called Sterling and came off the interstate. We're driving down into the town to get some breakfast. I wasn't driving. There was another guy driving the, the bus. He and his wife were on the bus. Rachel was a month old. Our oldest was a month old. And uh, Terry was holding her and I was driving. We didn't have car seats in those days and we barely had seatbelts and we actually lived. And, uh, and as we came, he was in front of us, and as we came down to the intersection, there was a red light, and he was not slowing down. And uh, I just thought that was odd, and then right after that, there was the sound of grinding, and he was trying to downshift the bus to get it to slow down and to get it to stop. And he blew through that red light, full speed, grinding gears, trying to get the bus to stop. And, and we stopped at the stoplight as he, kind of rolled to a stop farther down the road. And my first thought was, at least there weren't any cops. I should, my first thought should have been, I'm glad they're okay. But my first thought was, at least there weren't any cops. And then the light eventually turned so that the green arrow for the other side could go. 
And, and the first car pulled through, and the second car pulled through, and it was a state trooper. And I was just like, no, no. And he just turned around, went down there, and turned on his lights. And 1200 and some dollars, we were back on the road, headed towards Wisconsin. And I had just spent every dollar we had. And we were moving a thousand miles away to a place where we really didn't know anybody, and I didn't have any money for first semester. That was actually the down payment. You had to make the down payment for your first semester. And I remember we were walking, Terry and I were walking down a railroad track in the town, and I was me. I've always been Mr. Negative. And we're walking down the tracks and I said to, something to her whining about why would God bring us out here get us to this point and then do this to us so now we don't have any money to go to school and we can't even live on campus because we don't have any money so we now don't have no place to live when we get there it was just this whole uh, thing and I've got this new baby that I'm, I'm feeling like I've got to provide for and I have nothing and her words were Job had a lot worse Seriously, that was it. And, uh, and we got in the bus and um, we left. I think we had enough money left just to pay for gas. The thing was blowing oil out the back so that the guy who was driving it was coating our car with oil. It was just coming off the tailpipe. It was just, it was not a good scenario. And we got to the school and I was, I was trying to figure out how I was going to explain to the people in, in authority there that I didn't have any money and I didn't know what to do. And I was praying that they would be merciful in some way. And, um, and I had just had surgery, so I could not help unload the bus. So Terry said, why don't you go check our mail? And I was just like, go check our mail. We aren't even here yet. Why are we going to have any mail? She said, just go check our mail. She was just trying to get me out of there. She said, go check the mail. I'll direct the guys to unload into our, I'm adding this, it was a little camp room. It was a camp dorm. And it was a one room with a bathroom, about 15 by 15 feet. And that's where we were going to be living. And so I was like, fine, I'll go check the mail. So I walked over to the mailboxes and uh, went into the office and said to the lady my name. And she said, oh, yeah, there is a piece of mail for you here. And I was like, so she gave it to me, and I saw the return address was from South Sheridan Baptist Church, which was our home church, and so I figured it was a letter from our pastor trying to be encouraging, and I opened it up, and inside that envelope was the letter dated before we left Denver. So Pastor Nelson did not know anything about our circumstances when he mailed that letter. He said, someone in the church wanted to help you with your college, and here's a check here. And the check was for exactly what we needed to make our first payment for school. I can't tell you how many times over the years when we've gotten financially stretched, that I have looked back on that, and I could tell you far more stories during those first two years at the college, how we had nothing and there would be cash in our box, our mailbox. 
we, we just, Rachel said to us a couple of years ago, we were poor, and I was just like, no, we weren't. And she said, Dad, we bought all our clothes at Goodwill, and we got food from the food pantry. We were poor. And I was like, yeah, I guess we, we were. But we didn't feel poor, because God just took care of us over and over again. And I think what we sometimes don't remember is God has to bring us to these places where we have no other options but him to show us that he is still faithful. Living in an affluent society where we can just pay for everything we need, we forget that we even need God. But it's good for us to remember sometimes how God has worked in the past, how he has brought us to salvation. When we feel like we have nothing left, that we cannot go on, memories of God's past encouragement and strengthening can lift our hearts. And when we feel alone, to meditate and to ponder and remember that God never leaves us or forsakes us and that he is always present with us. That's what David is talking about here when he says, I remember the days of old. I meditate on all that you have done. I ponder the works of your hands. And as David reflects on these truths, his heart begins to move towards God. And I want you to see his statement in verse 6. I stretch out my hands to you. I remember, I meditate, I ponder, and it makes me lift my hands to you, God. It moves my heart. It moves my being. It moves everything I have towards you. And all I can do is lift my hands and say that my soul wants you like a parched land needs water. I'm in a mess, God. But I know that you're faithful because I can look back on all the times you have been faithful and I know that you will be faithful and all that I have is you and I lift my hands up to you. David spread his hands in prayer to God because he knows that what his soul needs most is God. What I need most is not money. What I need most is not friends. What I need most is not relationships. What I need most is not health. What I need most is not happiness. What I need most is not a constitution or a declaration of independence that says that we are guaranteed the right to life, liberty, and for the pursuit of happiness because that's not biblical. What I need most is God. His desperate heart produces petitions that flow out of his heart in rapid succession. Answer me quickly, O Lord, my spirit fails. fails. Hide not your face from me. Let me hear you in the morning. Make me know the way I should go. Deliver me from my enemies. Teach me to do your will. Let your good spirit lead me. Preserve my life. It's just like rapid succession. David starts spitting out what he needs from God. And what he needs from God is everything that God is. This verse 7 really messes with me. Because it's a command. David doesn't say, please answer me quickly, O Lord. The language in the Hebrew is a command. God, answer me quickly. I need you and I need you now. 
And I just thought, that's pretty brazen. I, I don't think we're in a place where we get to demand things of God. But David is at a point realizing that all that he, all, his only hope, everything that he needs is wrapped up in God. And so it just spews out of him. God, now. I need you now. He's not saying, give me money right now, make me happy right now, make me healthy right now. He's saying, give me you now. And as I thought about it, I, I've come to the conclusion it's okay to demand that of God because that's what he wants us to do. It is never wrong to ask God for him. And I don't think it's wrong to demand of God himself. Because God delights in giving us himself. David's greatest desire is God himself. And I, I wonder how often we do remember that in our darkest moments, what we need most is not money or friends or success, but what we need most is God. Do we realize that true blessing is not really what we can hold in our hand, but the fact that we are known and loved by God because of Jesus. In verses 8 to 10, David is ex expresses his heart to be obedient to God. He wants to know that the way he he wants to know the way he should go. Teach me your, to do your will, for you are my God. Let your good spirit lead me on level ground. David wants God to teach him the way he should go, and he wants to be led by the Spirit in that way so that David doesn't spiritually stumble. Now we could think about David and how he did spiritually stumble because he was imperfect. So I think it's better to think about a future king that was promised to David as the one who would sit on David's throne forever. And that future king, that descendant of David, had a heart to completely obey his father. It was Jesus who said to the serpent, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. What satisfies me, my bread, my food, my satisfaction is, to, is what God has to say, what my Father has to say, and to do the will of the one who sent me. Jesus' heart is to be our heart, and that's what David is expressing in this moment. Christ's likeness, if we're going to be like Jesus, Christ's likeness is not simply an option for the child of God, and it's not simply what God intends. It is not God suggesting to us a better way to live. The greatest 
thing that God has said to you is not that I have a great plan for your life. The greatest thing that God has said to you through Jesus is follow me. Do the things that I do. Keep in step with the Spirit. Love not the world or the things that are in the world. God does not call us to be morally better. God calls us to be like Jesus who never sinned. And I want to say that again. God calls us to be like Jesus who never sinned. Ever. Christ-likeness is not just about becoming gentle and lowly, although that is a big part of it. Christ-likeness is not just about being a person who loves everybody around him. Christ-likeness is Ephesians 4, it's Ephesians 5, it's Romans 12, it's Romans 13, it's Romans 14, it's Romans 15, and I could keep going on and on when we are told to live a certain way and to think a certain way because we are becoming a certain way. I want to be clear. You know how I preach on the forgiveness of God and our standing before God and we are to come boldly into God's presence. Do not ever take that to mean that you can live however you want to live. I want to remove the legalism of I do because I don't want to get in trouble. I also want to replace with what is biblical, and that is what David says here, I need you so much and I want you so much. Teach me to do your will. I need your spirit to help me to walk correctly so I don't stumble. I am passionate about Christians understanding that they stand in the righteousness of Christ before their Father, but I am just as passionate that we come to a place as Christians where we understand that God has called us to a totally different lifestyle, radically different from what we see naturally around us. He calls us to love our enemies. He calls us to do good to those who despitefully use you. He calls us to keep our mouths shut and our tongues pure. And that's what David is crying out to God for. I have fled to you for refuge. Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. Let your good spirit lead me on level ground. Ephesians 2 tells us that believers are created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The Holy Spirit is at work in us producing fruit and we are commanded, commanded to keep in step with the Spirit. David ends this psalm hoping in an eternal plan of God. In verse 11, For your name's sake, O Lord, preserve my life. In your righteousness, bring my soul out of trouble. 
And in your steadfast love, you will cut off my enemies and you will destroy all the adversaries of my soul. From eternity past, before the foundation of the world, it has been God's plan to call and redeem people from every tribe and tongue and nation and people for his name's sake. He didn't do this because he was lonely in the vast eternity of the universe and he wanted to have a relationship with you. Garbage. Bad theology. God created everything and everyone for his name's sake. To praise him. To point other people to him. For people to find their ultimate good in him. His glory has always been his highest objective because when people love and obey God, they not only praise God, but they are in the place of greatest blessing, the place of greatest good. Whatever other circumstances surround them or they experience, knowing God is the place of greatest blessing and the place of greatest good, knowing and obeying God. When a person's heart turns to worship anything or any person besides God, that person is in the place of greatest danger and harm. And so David's cry here is for God's namesake. He wants his life preserved for God's namesake. And because of this truth, David knows that God will do what is best for him. In your steadfast love, you will cut off my enemies and you will destroy all the adversaries of my soul. Because God's love for you never flags. It never stops. It never changes. God cannot love you more at any moment. God cannot love you less at any moment. If you are his child, he has a love for you that you can't even begin to imagine and it never wavers at any moment. It's steadfast. And because of this, David knows he doesn't ask. He says, in your steadfast love, you will cut off my enemies and you will destroy all the adversaries of my soul. I, I very strongly wonder, I can't prove this in any way, but I just wonder if David in his remembering, in his pondering, in his meditating, if, if in, that, in, that, in those moments and in that time of him doing that, if his mind went back to, he will crush your head. That promise to Satan. That wasn't a, you know what I want to have happen to you someday, Satan, is I, I want your head to get crushed. That wasn't how God put it. He said, he will crush your head. The God of hope offered no hope to Satan. 
Zero. He will crush your head. He didn't say, unless you repent and follow me. He says, Satan, you're done. There is going to be a day when you are done. And I just have to wonder if that came to David's mind. And so David said, you will cut off my enemies. You will destroy all the adversaries of my soul. But David could only look forward. He could look back and he could look forward. He could look back to the promise and he could look forward anticipating the promise. And if David is on the run from, from Saul at this point in time, he may have been on the run from Absalom. That was another time when he was being pursued. Depending on that, there are things that he knew when he ran from Absalom that he didn't know when he ran from Saul. But whichever that may be, we live in a time and we live in a place and we live with the revelation of God before us in what we call the Word of God where he tells us that the serpent's head has been crushed. A mortal wound has been delivered. It bruised Jesus' heel. But it crushed Satan's head. And he's not quite dead. But he definitely is not as powerful as he used to be. He has no power over the believer. And he's in his death throes. And we will one day crush him under our feet. And that's going to be the end of him forever. And knowing that, I think it's good for us to ponder and meditate and remember that Satan's thrashing with a smushed head. Years ago, I, w I worked on a golf course in the foothills of Colorado. Um, if you know much about Colorado, and if you know much about the foothills of Colorado, there are a lot of rattlesnakes in the foothills of Colorado. A lot of them. Uh, there are people who have businesses, the companies that have businesses up in those foothills. Uh, my dad worked up in the foothills, and uh, they had a paved parking lot, and he said they told them in training, their first day on the job, that when they go out to their cars in the evening, they need to have something like a stick or something and bang the car, bang the tires. Uh, because the, the snakes come out and get underneath the cars and lay on that pavement where it's nice and warm. We used to see them on the golf course all the time. Uh, you'd, you'd, uh, you'd hear the fairway mower going down the fairway and you'd hear zing, zing, and that was a snake that got caught in those uh, cutters on those mowers. There were places on the course where they had signs that said, do not go into the brush rattlesnakes. As workers, we, we figured out where the rattlesnakes hung out, so we collected lots of brand new golf balls where those golfers would not go in to collect their balls. I had a couple grocery bags of golf balls when we first got married, um, and I never did use them all up because you could just be picking them up all the time. But there was a day when I was going home from work, I could tell you lots of stories about rattlesnakes, there was a day when I was going home from work and there was a large rattlesnake in the middle of the road, going across the road. But at that point, he was just laying there. 
And I thought, I've always wanted a rattlesnake skin. Now, if, if, you, do, if you don't like um, animals being killed, this is going to be traumatic for you, so I suggest you plug your ears. But I don't have that problem. Um, so I hopped out of my car and opened up my trunk where I had a golf bag with my golf clubs because we played golf every day after work as well. And I got my five iron. Five iron is pretty long, gives you some space. And I picked up a big rock and I chucked it at that snake and hit it in the head. And then I went over and started pounding on his head with a, and this is very graphic, I know. I'm, I uh, should have had a warning, graphic material. Uh, let you walk out if that was what you wanted first. But I pounded him in the head until I knew he was dead and then I threw him in my trunk. A couple things to know with rattlesnakes. They can still bite you after they're dead. They're, they have reflexes in their mouth. And if they feel certain things, in the, if, if those reflexes, if those places get touched, they'll clamp down. And there are people who have died from rattlesnake bites after, even if the head is severed, the head can still bite you. So if you get a rattlesnake and you hit it with a rock and you kill it with a golf club, don't stick your fingers in the mouth, okay? Don't do that. Um, but the other thing with the rattlesnake is that you can sever the head from the body and that body will, will thrash and whip and if you want to skin the rattlesnake and keep the skin, which I did, it was a four and a half foot rattlesnake. It was a nice one. It was, that's why I jumped out of the car. And, but if you want to skin it, then you have to hang it because otherwise it will curl up and then rigor mortis will set in and you can't ever uh, undo it uh, and get a decent skin. My mom was not happy to come out in the garage and see a rattlesnake hanging from the garage rafter. But I told her it was going to come down and it couldn't hurt her and not to worry. She still didn't like it. And I heard about it. My point in all that is not to gross you out, but to help you understand that, that snakes still are dangerous even after you've damaged them in the head with a mortal blow. And that's Satan. He's not dead, but he is done. We need to live in the reality that as he is in his death throes, he still seeks to devour the souls of human. And Satan still wars against God, against God's family, and he is still the destroyer. So we will still experience conflict and crisis. And we need to understand that Satan has an agenda to oppose everything that is good and to destroy everything that is good and, and to subvert God's agenda and subvert God, Christianity and that there are people caught in the crosshairs of that war who need not to be better people, not to be better versions of their self. But there are people who Satan wants to destroy in hell. And God calls us to live in a way and to speak in, the, in a way of the gospel to those people. And as we experience living in the already but not yet, my desire is that I will be and that you will be a person who remembers what God has done, that our hearts will desire him more than anything else, and that we will keep in step with the Spirit so that his name may be exalted in our lives and words. Let's pray. Father, I thank you as I think of Satan and as I think of the war that is going on. I thank you 
that you have no plan B. You don't even have plan 1.01. You have a plan and that no one thwarts your plan. And I can't explain all of that, Father. Not only can I not explain it all, there are points of it I can't even wrap my head around. But I just acknowledge what you've said in your word that no one thwarts your will. And that what you say will happen, will happen. Help us to rest in you in the midst of circumstances that just don't make sense. Help us to be brave and bold in the midst of a world that seems to be falling apart. And help us in our boldness to be gentle and lowly. Help us to be obedient. That when we're tired, when the, when the war has us worn down, and we feel like taking off the armor of God and just giving up because we can't deal with it anymore, Father, remind us of what lies ahead. Give us power in the Holy Spirit. Help us to be faithful to you because we are so grateful that you are faithful to us. We love you. We need you. May you cause our hearts to rise to you and our hands to stretch out to you. In your son's name, amen.